Do you ever wonder what God wants you to do? In Dallas Willard's book, Hearing God, he says that one of the questions most frequently asked by Christians is, what is God's will for my life? It's a question that I'm sure many of us have asked. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. In today's podcast, we'll be looking at the book of Amos, one of the Old Testament prophets, to help us in answering this question. As we start, it's important to understand that we'll be talking about real-life situations. This isn't just about some crazy prophet out in the desert ranting and raving, but these books are about real people who lived in identifiable history. To help you see this and help you understand where they fit in history, I've created a chart that places the various prophets along with the historical kings that lived at that time. Now, the chart is on the on the website www.bible805.com for you to download. And you don't have to download it for this podcast to make sense, but it it will really help you if you want to understand where the prophets fit in biblical history. I've said this many times, but it's so frustrating because in our Bibles, the prophets are in one place, the history's in another, we don't know who was speaking to who or when, and this chart I think will help you, as I I hope the podcast will also, because I'll try to always put the prophets in with their historical settings. In addition to the chart, it's very very interesting because most of the prophets start out with a statement like I'm going to read you in just a minute where they clearly identify when it took place. This is how the book of Amos starts. It says the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. Now it's really interesting when you look at the archaeology that supports what he was talking about. First of all, about the the earthquake. And I'm going to read you something from a website that talked about it. It's really interesting. It says that archaeologists found massive amounts of earthquake damage in sites throughout the ancient kingdoms of Judah, Israel, and the Philistines. This earthquake damage dates to around 760 BC, right around the latter third of King Uzziah's reign. Tilted walls, collapsed floors, and more are attributed to this earthquake. So great is the amount of evidence that scientists have been able to determine the epicenter was likely in Lebanon, and that its strength was probably around a magnitude 8.2, and it lasted 90 seconds. Now, let me just stop right there. I live in California, and you may have seen it in the news recently. We had a 7.1 earthquake. Now, it was quite a ways away from us, but we still felt it. We were we were sitting in our living room that night and I and it was around I think they said it was like maybe 30, 40 seconds. It seemed like forever. And even though I think it was probably at least a hundred miles away, it was pretty scary. And I cannot even imagine something that was multitudes times longer than that and that lasted that much longer. Ninety seconds, if you've never been in an earthquake, doesn't sound like much. But trust me, if you've been in one, that would have seemed like forever. Josephus, it was so significant, Josephus wrote about 
of this particular earthquake later in his history, and he said, again, he verifies that the earthquake occurred when Uzziah was king, and he said it was in that part of the history, and if you're reading through the Bible with us, King Uzziah started out really well. He he did all kinds of, of wonderful things for the kingdom. He was a very good administrator. He was a builder. He was a great general, but then it said he became proud, and he decided that it wasn't enough to be king and general and leader and all that. He wanted to act like a priest also. So he goes into the temple to offer a sacrifice or to offer incense. And that was totally, totally wrong for him to do. And it said that there was, that immediately he knew it was wrong. And Josephus said that the earthquake occurred when he was attempting to do that. Josephus goes on to say, a rent was made in the temple and the bright rays of the sun shone through it and fell upon the king's face insomuch that leprosy seized upon him immediately. The Bible says that he became a leper because of that. He also claimed that a nearby mountainside collapsed, causing in a significant landslide that destroyed roads in the king's prized gardens. So Josephus really ties this to the judgment of Uzziah, but regardless, there was a large earthquake, and again, this just shows that Amos is trying to put his book in a true historical setting. So um, in addition to that, when you look at the archaeology around this, they've discovered seals that had the names of Uzziah's servants. They dis- discovered a burial plaque of his. A number of things that show, once again, that this took place in true history. Now, this isn't a, an archaeology lesson, and this isn't an archaeology apologetics thing. The thing that I want you to realize is that the Bible speaks to us in real-life situations. At that time, there was a lot of political turmoil. It was a relatively wealthy, prosperous nation, but they had their share of ecological disasters. They had this big earthquake. There was tremendous spiritual decline going on, even though the nation was very wealthy. And of course, I have to say, this sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We live in a very similar time, and I think Amos has a lot to say about us. Now, let me just review the history, the biblical history that was going on at the time. The loose coalition of tribes had been united under Saul, David, and Solomon, but after Solomon died, it split into two parts in 922 B.C. Elijah and Elisha were two of the early prophets to Israel. Then Jonah comes along and he prophesies really wealthy, wonderful things to happen in Israel and that they would be victorious and that they would do all this great stuff. And that happened. And so Jonah was this very successful prophet. But you can go back and listen to the podcast about him. It's right after he preached this very successful message that God says, go to Nineveh and preach to them. And we all know the story. Jonah didn't want to do it. He eventually does that. But you can listen to that podcast on Jonah. Well, not long after Jonah left to preach, then Amos comes along. Now, it's kind of interesting because Amos was not from Israel. God called him up from Judah. We don't know why. Maybe it's because that just didn't seem to be doing a whole lot of good, the ones that were, were preaching there at that time. But his contemporaries in Judah, Isaiah was preaching in Judah. Hosea is, which we'll talk about in the next podcast, was actually also preaching in Israel a little bit later, and and there was a little bit of overlap. And then also the prophet Micah was also preaching in Judah. Now, just to look ahead, 
Israel is taken captive in 721 BC, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. His message, Amos's message, and Hosea's were the last major warnings to Israel before they went into captivity. Judah was watching this. Um, Isaiah and Micah were preaching, but uh, theirs didn't seem to do a whole lot of good either. And Jerusalem fell to Babylon in about 586 BC. But let's now go back and focus on the world of Amos. And let me give you a little bit of an overview of who he was. His name means burden bearer. Now, he was not formally trained. We don't have any evidence that he was in any of the schools of the prophets or that a senior prophet trained him like Elijah and Elisha. He was a shepherd and he was a farmer. And also, he was from Judah, but he was sent north to preach to an incredibly wealthy, prosperous, and very religious nation. Now, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. One of the things about him initially is it just shows us how God's calling is very unpredictable and exciting. One commentator that I read said, it's just like when he called the disciples, these fishermen. He didn't go to the temple to call the people to follow him. He called some fishermen. He called a tax collector. He called a religious zealot. He he called all these um, all these people that you just wouldn't want on your team, so to speak. But God knew his heart. And he also knew that he would have to be a tremendously brave man to deliver the message that he that he did. The key theme in the book is justice. And the entire book reminds us that God expects it and he punishes economic and social injustice. Now, we might ask, why did God send him? Well, it's interesting because Amos starts out by saying, Surely the Sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophet. God tells us what he's going to do. And Jesus had a similar uh, thought when he said in John fifteen fifteen, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. The books of the prophets and the New Testament illustrate this, that God doesn't hide things from us. He tells us clearly what we're supposed to do. Now, the challenge to them back in the Old Testament times and to us is, are we listening? Now, if we don't listen, sometimes God delays judgment. He doesn't just tell us to do something and then smack you know, we're in trouble. But his delay in judgment always shows his mercy and his patience, never his acceptance of sin. And the prophets help us help us really understand this better. And we also have the warning in Proverbs where it says, Whoever stubbornly refuses to accept criticism will suddenly be destroyed without recovery. And so I'm in part doing these these lessons so we will all know what God wants. I don't want to destruction and I don't want God's judgment on anybody that's listening to me or anybody really on anybody so let's listen carefully to what the book begins with now the book starts out not with directly talking about judgment on Israel but it talks about the surrounding nations and it starts up in the northeast corner and it goes clockwise down around the nations surrounding Israel and then it gets up to Israel. First God 
talks about judging Damascus for their cruelty in war. It talks about Tyre because they sold their brothers into slavery. Gaza also for their slave trade. Ammon, it talks about excessive cruelty in war. And Edom, God condemns them for their anger and their fury to their brothers. Moab for their excessive vengeance. Then Jonah hits on Judah for its idolatry. And what this reminds us of is, as in Romans 1, All people, all nations are accountable to God. God's expectations of humanity are universal. There are no excuses. Now, those that belong to him are judged even more harshly. In fact, in Amos 3.2, God says, You I have chosen, he's speaking to Israel, therefore I will punish you. And this reminds us of Luke 12.48, where it says that to whom much is given, much is required. Everyone is required to live a certain basic way, and God wants them to trust him. But for his own people, he expects even more of us. Now, after Amos gives this initial listing, he then goes on to to list some of the crimes that the nation of Israel is particularly guilty of. He talks about how they trample the poor, how there's injustice in many areas, they worship idols, they forgive prophets to speak, they're guilty of excessive drinking and lots of self-indulgence. And one of the ways he kind of sums this up is, this is a little bit brutal, Amos is kind of tough. He says, hear this, you cows of Bashan. He's referring to the women who live there. Uh, You cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us more drinks. This is, is his condemnation of them. And then in Amos 2, 6 through 12, he has a whole a list. And this is just one of the lists, but I'll read this to you. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not re- relent, God is speaking. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I will destroy the Amorites before them, and I brought you out of Egypt. God then goes into a section where he tells, he reminds them how he has given them victory, he's given them deliverance. He goes on to say, I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made them Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. So pretty heavy, severe judgment God is is challenging them with. But how did they respond? Well, they thought they were just fine. Um, Outwardly, they were extremely religious. But remember, they had a religion that was mixed with idolatry. The former king, Jeroboam, had set up the two golden calves at Dan and Bethel after the kingdom split apart. And what he had also instituted all these religious celebrations and his he put he installed his own priests and so he gave them something to worship but it wasn't the true worship of god and as i was thinking about that i thought it's really kind of similar today we really have to look at ourselves because when we go to church 
Are we just worshiping God, but then do we also worship our own idols of self-indulgence and selfishness and a lack of care for the less fortunate? God's response to all of this, to people doing all sorts of churchy things, but then living for themselves and not really caring about the less fortunate. Here's what God says. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. He doesn't just leave them with condemnation, but he goes on to say, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And he goes on to say, But let justice roll on like a river, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Now, it might be good for us to pause here a minute and look at what the term justice really means. And I'm going to explain this using an article out of Relevant Magazine that was in there a few years ago. It's, it's really quite good on how it explains it. It says, The Hebrew word for justice is the word mishpat which occurs in its various forms more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of the race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. And I hope you remember what we talked about earlier. One of the things that was really, this is my comments here, uh, one of the things about the Mosaic Law that was so astounding about it is it had this idea of equal justice for everyone. You were a king or a wealthy person, you were not punished the same way that a slave or a woman would be. But in God's view, everyone is the same. Everyone should be treated the same. Everyone should be both punished fairly and treated fairly. But it go, the article goes on and says, Mishpat means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. Giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. This is why, if you look at every place the word is used in the Old Testament, several classes of persons continually come up. Over and over again, Mishpat describes taking up the care and the cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, the poor, those who have been called the quartet of the vulnerable. In pre-modern agrarian societies, these four groups had no social power. They lived at a subsistence level and were only days from starvation if there was any famine, invasion, or even minor social unrest. Today, this quartet would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, and many single parents and elderly people. There's another passage in Isaiah who, again, was preaching at the same time that helps explain this, that helps explain the importance of justice and the meaning of justice and how to become people who do it and what describes people who practice justice. He starts out talking about people who seek him every day. And uh, it says, day after day, they seek me out. But then they want to know, we've humbled ourselves and you haven't noticed. In spite of their moral lives, in spite of them doing what they think, 
think is right, maybe different religious practices, what well, we go to church and we tithe and we do all the right things, God doesn't seem to be answering their prayers. And God's response is really startling. They say they fast, they fast, and God replies in Isaiah 58, 5 through 7. He's basically saying, let me tell you what a fast is. Let me tell you what worship is. And he goes on to say, is it not to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke and set the oppressed free? Is not the fast I choose to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, to see the naked and clothe him? God takes these things so seriously. You can fast and you can wail and you can do all kinds of religious things, but if you're mistreating your fellow human beings, if you're allowing that to happen, God says, I am not pleased. You do what's right by people, by all people, by the poor, by the impressed, by the immigrant, by the alien. And that's what it means to know me. He goes on in Micah 6, 8, which was a prophet also preaching at that time, where people are saying, what does God want? What does God want from us? And Micah 6, 8 answers, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Now, mercy is so important here because we've been shown mercy and we need to remember that when we do justice. And humility also is needed because all we have and are is because of God. We can never be proud in any good thing that we do because everything that we have is a gift. Pride and arrogance and thinking we're first in you know, all that kind of garbage. You know, that's just the opposite of justice, mercy, and humility, and should never be characteristic of God's people. God cares deeply for the poor, the widow, and the alien, and he expects his people to do the same. There's nothing in us to deserve God's love and mercy. And I was thinking, you know, with, uh, with immigrants and aliens, you know, God tells us we are strangers. We are guests on this earth. It does not belong to us. We are all in that category. But God pours out his blessing and love to us. He accepts us as his people. He gives us a home. And that's how we should treat people in the same way. But their response, instead of repentance, Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. And he said, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. Amaziah himself then goes to Amos and said, Get out, you! seer. That's what they called prophets back then. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is a king's sanctuary in the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah. He says, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now, hear the word of the Lord. And oh my goodness, does he ever answer Amaziah. He says, you say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will go into exile away from her native land. And those things came true.
Now he continues with many kinds of judgment that that's also going to come. He says, hear this. You who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, while I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And when I read that, and as I've studied that, that struck me so forcefully because I think we have that today. I think in America overall, even though we call ourselves a Christian nation, um, there's a real famine for hearing the word of the Lord. People don't study the word. They don't know the word. It's just amazing to me that anyone would ask the question of how are we supposed to treat immigrants? The Bible is really clear about that. There's absolutely no question with mercy and justice and kindness and love. There's there's no question throughout the entire Bible, first to last, we treat people well who are less fortunate. But people don't know because they don't read the word. I would really encourage you, and I, I messed up on this in that I, I put... I put them on the website out of order and I won't go into how uh, how messed up and and disorganized I can be but please go back and listen to podcast number 36 on Proverbs part 1 why we need it in our post-christian post-biblical world because in that podcast I talk about how Every, a lot of people recognize that we live in a post-christian world but what is really very disturbing to me and I think really important to understand where we are as a people and and in the church individually is I believe we also live in a post-biblical world. Many, many people who call themselves Christian do not know what the Bible says about many things because they haven't read it. And they for sure have not read many of the Old Testament prophets, much of the Old Testament itself. That's why, of course, I'm doing this podcast. But I encourage you to go back, listen to it again. Podcast number 36 on Proverbs, why we need it in our post-Christian, post-biblical world. So, so many people, again, because they think that God is just a giver of goodies, and that, um, you know, they became a Christian and so they did God a favor and then now they can live however they want. That is just not true. There are many warnings, but finally Amos ends up, or that's not the end of the book actually, there's a good ending, but one of his last warnings is he says, For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. Those who say disaster will not overtake and meet us. And in less than 50 years, the land was completely destroyed and Israel was no longer a nation. But overall and always it's and this is this is one of the things I love about the minor what we call the minor prophets and all of the prophets actually there's always hope at the end because God says you know after all of this and some of this may not happen until heaven but he says in that day 
I will restore David's fallen shelter, and repair its broken walls, and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be. I will bring back my people from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in her own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, this lesson is important not only for Amos's time and the lessons that he gives there and how people are supposed to treat the poor and how judgment will come if they don't. But I also want to use this time to remind us of how Jesus himself repeated a very similar message in Matthew 25 when he talks about the end times of final judgment. And I'm always amazed when I read this. People a lot of times have all sorts of theories and ideas about, well, this is going to happen in prophecy and this is going to happen in this and that and the other. And they sometimes ignore what Jesus very clearly says is going to happen. And here's what he says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, You who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these my brothers and sisters, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You are accursed to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? He will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. God makes it very clear what he wants, what he expects from people, and we need to obey him. The question is, are we living his priorities? He makes us very clear what these priorities are. Care for the downtrodden, for the immigrant, for the alien, for the orphan, for people in need is not optional. It is a key expectation of God's people. Religious services, going to church, tithing, whatever, that's fine, but that is not a substitute for life actions. That's not a substitute for reorienting our life's priorities. You don't have to do really big things. Do whatever you can 
There are always people that you can help. You, um, I know people listen to this from around the world, but most of you live in countries where it makes a difference if you contact your leaders. You need to let them know what the biblical standard is. Because remember, God's standards, his judgment was on all of the people, whether they claim to be a religious nation or not. God, our creator, expects us to treat people in certain ways. God's mercy is long, but it should never be taken for granted. We should be people whose lives reflect justice, mercy, and humility in all we do, always remembering again that line, and I know many of you have heard it. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, in summary, God has told us what he wants to do. And I think his ultimate message on this, starting with Amos and then continuing through Matthew 25, can be summed up in Micah 6, 8, where he says again, and I know you've heard this, but let me repeat it. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let me read this to you in the message translation. It's, it's kind of neat there. He says, but he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. God's told us what he wants us to do. But the question is, are we listening and are we obeying? That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format. Please subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends about it so that they can learn God's Word. I don't want them, and I don't want anyone who's a Christian to be suffering from a famine of God's Word. And please do encourage others to listen to this series of podcasts. The podcast series starts with how we can trust the Bible. If they haven't listened to any of them, that might be a good place to start because I really go over how through history and various things that we can really trust God's Word. One more reminder and encouragement to listen to podcast number 36 where I explain our post-Christian, post-biblical world and why it's important that we understand where we're at so we can see how important it is for us to get God's Word in our life to really be able to live the life that He wants us to live. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest. From loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.